Hello everyone and um, welcome to our webinar. Um, let me introduce us. Um, this is a Women's Health First Public Health Education and Promotion um, webinar. Um, this is this um, webinar happens bi-weekly if you're joining for the first time. Um, Women Health First promotes the health and well-being of women and their families through public health education and promotion. Um, our webinar series are informational sessions, and uh, we believe you would learn a lot. You, you will learn a lot from them. Um, a little bit about myself. Um, my name is Ramatu Muhammad. I'm the Vice President, Public Health, um, for the Women Health First. Um, I am currently the Family Support Specialist at Center for Leadership and Disability at Georgia State University. I am also the coordinator of the Family Mentoring Experience for the Emory MPH program. I also am the family faculty for the Georgia Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental and Related Disabilities. I am currently doing my master's in public health program at John Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, so let me introduce Dr. Ujuka, our beautiful OBGYN. So um, Dr. Elao Bucci received a Bachelor's of Science with honor in biochemistry at the City University of New York in 2007. She holds her Doctor of Medicine from um, Mount Senior School of Medicine, New York in 2011. Furthermore, Dr. Elao Bucci successfully completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia in 2015. Um, Dr. Ujuka Ilaobuchi is a mother, she is a wife, she's a physician, and she's a specialist in women's health. She believes that it is a privilege to care for women at all stages in their lives. As a private practice physician, she has the unique opportunity to form lasting relationships with her patients. Um, this range between adolescence, young adulthood, childbearing years, um, and all, all through to um, um, beyond. We, we put beyond there. So it's like the, the whole range of the women's health um, age groups. Um, Dr. Ilaobuchi attends to them at her practice. Um, her practice is the Gwinnett OBGYN Associates, um, and they serve women of Gwinnett County and Greater Atlanta area. In addition, she has hospital privileges at Eastside Medical Center, Snellville, Georgia. Please help us to welcome Dr. Ilao Bucci to this presentation on breast cancer prevention. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ramatu, for the wonderful presentation, Dr. Mohammed. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, everyone, for joining in. And thanks for having me. I'm just about to... We'll dive right in because we have a lot to talk about. So uh, today's topic is about breast cancer and how do we prevent it? How do we empower ourselves? Um, as Dr. Mohammed mentioned, my name is Dr. Jukailua Bucci. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist who practices in Gwinnett County, greater um, Atlanta area. So a brief overview of breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in women. It's a leading cause of cancer deaths. In the US is the second leading cause of cancer deaths. Um, the first being ovarian cancer and then um, colon cancer to follow in terms of cancer deaths. So it's, it has a big public health impact and you know, knowledge is key. Understanding you know, the signs and symptoms and understanding how we can prevent it will be very important to ensuring our health. A brief anatomy of the breast. So on this picture here, I wanted to show that the breast tissue goes as far as close to the clavicle, the collarbone, and you have lymph nodes extending under the clavicle, above the clavicle, and also in the armpit. These are all lymph nodes that drain lymphatic um, fluid from the breast. As you can see, you have the nipple, the areola, and you have the lobules. So on this picture is the cross section. The breast is mainly comprised of fatty tissue, but you also have 
the lobules where the actual milk is made and then the ducts that carry the milk into the nipple. And each little circle is called a lobule and the group of them will be considered a lobe. Underneath the breast itself is the pectoralis major muscle and the pectoralis minor muscle, which then overlies the rib cage. So when people get breast implants, sometimes they go through the nipple to place the implants, or sometimes it's placed underneath the muscle, right on top of the rib, the rib cage. So I wanted to start by just going over some of the signs and symptoms, and then we'll delve more in into risk factors, um, treatment options, different things. So the most common is a lump. So if you notice a lump in the breast, majority of lumps in the breast are actually gonna be benign. However, depending on your age, the appearance of the lump, how long it's been there, the shape, does it move around? All those things factor in into which lump is problematic versus a lump that could be benign and not cancerous. Also, you can have lumps in the armpit or you could feel lumps above the clavicle. These would be enlarged lymph nodes. Um, the breast tissue extends all the way up to the outer outside, outer portion of the chest wall. And so when we talk about doing breast exams, which I'm going to um, explain later, you have to include this area because there's some breast tissue there too. Then you have discharge. Usually clear discharge, or milky discharge may not be problematic, but blood discharge can be a sign of breast cancer. Again, depending on your age, depending on you know, risk factors, it's, it's often a telltale sign. And if that happens, that should be evaluated promptly. Then we have nipple inversion, change in the color and appearance of the nipple, redness over the breast itself or the skin appearing like the skin of an orange. And I have some pictures of actual breasts um, of women with some of the signs of cancer, albeit being advanced signs of cancer. But so I just want to warn everyone, some of these pictures may not be pretty to see and um, maybe a little bit gruesome, but let's see. So I wanted to start with inverted nipples. So this is a good picture of a normal inverted nipple. A lot of times people who have this, they're born with it from the time that they develop their breast tissue in puberty, they just always have their nipples inverted. And these nipples usually, even though they're inverted, can, they can be easily everted. But then when you are someone who doesn't usually have inverted nipples and all of a sudden your nipples start to go in like that. So as you can notice in the normal variant of inverted nipples, usually it's the nipple itself that goes in. But once you have the areola and kind of part of the whole nipple getting pulled in, and of course, when it does it, it's not as linear and symmetric as this, but it looks kind of irregular and kind of almost without any rhyme or reason. This is concerning. Um, so if you don't feel a lump and you were to notice this, please have it evaluated promptly. And then I also wanted to show this picture called orange, which translates to orange peel or orange skin. The breast tissue, the skin overlying the breast should not look like this. When the breast skin has this appearance, it's very concerning for cancer, especially a subtype of cancer called inflammatory breast cancer. As you can see in this lady, she has advanced stage cancer. You can see the nipple inversion. You can see some of the crusting. Probably she's having some drainage of, of, of fluid. The breast is very enlarged. You see the skin dimpling. So unfortunately, this is advanced cancer here. And then you have this picture, which may not be appreciable, but you can make out the lump here underneath the breast. So at this point, for the lump to be visible to the eye without even being felt will be concerning for at least locally advanced cancer. This picture, I wanted to highlight a nipple abnormality that we see sometimes, which can be benign, 
Sometimes it appears like eczema, which is common around the nipple and the areola, but you can also have Paget's disease, which in some cases can coexist with um, doctoral carcinoma in situ, which is a, a very, very early stage of breast cancer. So if you notice a non-healing sore on your nipple, if you notice redness or scaly skin, or just a sore that heals and comes back, heals and comes back, please have it evaluated. Sometimes a biopsy of the skin is needed to confirm the diagnosis and exclude um, underlying cancer. And of course, this picture is of a very advanced breast cancer. You can see this whole breast is completely overtaken by cancer tissue. There may have been attempted surgery on this breast, but oftentimes we don't see this stage of cancer in the US, but this is jarring to see. This picture actually was from a case report um, of a locally advanced cancer that was found in a, a small village in South Sudan. Um, of course, you know, there are access issues which would explain why a cancer should, you know, progress to this level. However, some women around the world do deal with this and do get to this level. And, you know, I pray that that's not the case for any of us. So what are the stages of breast cancer? Stage zero, which is where we hope to identify every cancer, and that's the goal for talking about prevention, for talking about screening, um, is usually the carcinoma in situ stage where the, the cancer is often confined to either the lobules or the ducts and hasn't extended into the basement membrane of the breast tissue. The survival rate is 100% because oftentimes the breast surgeon can go in and um, excise that lobule or excise the, the, the lobe and some tissue around it, and that's all you need, typically. And then you have stage one where the cancer is grown in size. There may or may not be a palpable lump, and it's more advanced than the stage zero stage, but still survival is pretty good, 98%. And then going into stage two, again, there's been a lot of advances in this point. The cancer is a little bit larger. You may have some lymph nodes that could be palpated or seen on imaging um, in, the, in the armpit, in the axilla. Stage three, the cancer itself is larger than two inches. You have it in, in the lymph nodes and you may start to see some skin changes at this point. So either skin dimpling or color change of the skin of the, of the breast. And of course, stage four is metastatic. The most common site for metastasis for breast cancer is bone tissue. So oftentimes you see bone lesions, but there's also be, there can also be metastasis to the brain, to the lungs. Um, and as you can see, the survival is less than 20%. So women who are found to have stage four cancer you know, the, the survival goes way down for them, unfortunately. So non-metastatic breast cancer can be termed early stage, stage one, stage zero before it, or stage 2A, 2B. Locally advanced, still within the breast, stage 2B, stage 3A to 3C. And, you know, the technicalities of what makes what stage what is not as important to us, but to know that these are categorized like this to tailor the treatment that a patient would receive. So when breast cancer is non-metastasized, non you can treat it with lumpectomy, you can treat it with mastectomy. So lumpectomy would involve removing the lump within the breast itself. You can also do a mastectomy where you would remove the whole breast tissue on that breast Sometimes it's unilateral where one breast is removed or it's bilateral where both breast tissue on both sides are removed. And oftentimes if the woman chooses, the breast can be reconstructed and um, cosmetic surgeons are very good with reconstructing, with implants, with using harvested muscle tissue from other parts of the body. So a lot of advances have been made where someone could have a double mastectomy and you would never know. Usually treatment and diagnosis involves evaluating the lymph nodes either through imaging, um, something called a sentinel lymph node 
the section, the sentinel load is a node to, that's positive for the cancer cells. And so you wanna remove that lymph node before it has a chance to spread to the other ones. And there are techniques during surgery to track exactly where the cancer tissue in the lymphatic fluid from the cancer cells are draining into and to remove those lymph nodes. Oftentimes, oftentimes treatment involves radiation therapy. Sometimes you have to do you know, chemotherapy through intravenous drugs. And after treatment is completed, most women have to be placed in suppressive therapy um, using letrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor um, or tamoxifen, which is most common. And oftentimes you have to take it for about five years or so to ensure um, suppression of the cancer cells. So what are the risk factors? And I have several slides going over risk factors and you know, the list is long and I, you know, we know that there are many risks for breast cancer, but it doesn't mean that if you have multiple of these risk factors that, oh my gosh, you're definitely gonna have breast cancer, no. But these are things that have been identified. These are things that have been studied. Number one being female. The fact that you're a female and you have breasts puts you at risk for breast cancer. Then increase in age. So from birth to age 49, uh, one in 49 women, um, from age 50 to 59, the risk is a little high. But the greatest risk, at least in the US, is from age 60 to 69. So it's very important in this age to ensure that you're keeping up with your screening, to ensure that you're doing your self-breast exams. Over 70, the risk is still there. But most of the studies and consensus have said to maybe stop screening at age 74. But overall risk in the US is one in eight women from all comers from birth to death. The risk of breast cancer is one in eight women. So white race has also been identified as a risk factor, weight and body fat, estrogen levels, exposure to radiation, especially if you needed, if someone needed um, radiation therapy um, for treatment of childhood or adolescent cancers during the ages of age 10 to 14 is the highest risk. Uh, for example, the most common cancer we see in younger people is lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and oftentimes requires radiation to adequately treat. And so this radiation to the chest wall and exposure to the breast tissue, which from 10 to 14 is when the breast tissue is starting to form um, or may have already formed increases the risk of breast cancer down the line. I thought it was interesting when the men, when I came across tall stature and I couldn't find a good explanation other than it was observed in studies that taller women tended to have a higher risk of breast cancer. The risk is not like twice the risk or it's just a little bit over the norm. Then reproductive factors like um, early Marinaki, so going, getting your period at a very early age or going through menopause later carries a risk. Not ever had having children, nulliparity. Infertility, which can influence nulliparity, um, plays a role. Increasing age at first pregnancy, again, taking some time to have children can increase the risk of breast cancer. And the key is, you know, this prolonged estrogen exposure um, each time that you're pregnant, your ovaries are somewhat suppressed. And while you breastfeed, the ovaries are also somewhat um, suppressed. And that in some ways is protective to the breast tissue and helps to prevent breast cancer. If there's a family history or a personal history, even especially there's a family history of male relative who had breast cancer. So you may not think that breast cancer, men can get breast cancer, but they do. And if you were to have a male relative who had breast cancer, then unfortunately that would be very concerning. If that male relative happens to be a first degree relative, so this would be either your mother, father, or a sibling, then that would carry more risk. So twofold risk, and then if you have, if it's one affected first degree relative, but if you had two affected first degree relatives, then the risk is even higher. 
And so when there are multiple family members with breast cancer, it lends the question of, are there genetic mutations? And these are the mutations that have been studied and established and known to um, be implicated in breast cancer. The most common that we must have heard about is BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations. Of note, Angelina Jolie, the actress, had either of these. And she chose, I think around the time she turned 40, to have a double mastectomy and, and I think also remove her ovaries to help decrease the risk, her risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. The BRCA mutations can be associated with not only breast cancer, but also ovarian cancer. These mutations are in genes that are tumor suppressor genes. So the, within the body, within the cell mechanism, the cells grow and they die. And there's inbuilt mechanisms for when a cell is ready to die, there are, there are agents and chemicals that are released to allow that cell to die, something called apoptosis. But when you have mutations, the cells sometimes don't know that it's time for them to bow out and they continue to grow and replicate and that's how you develop cancer. So if there's a, uh, either a loss of that gene or inactivity of that gene, then that increases the propensity for someone to develop um, these cells that continue to over replicate and then evolve into cancer. Other lifestyle factors, obviously you cannot control your genetics, you were born with it. But if you have a first degree relative, especially developing cancer younger than age 40, oftentimes in the US, younger women who develop cancer are tested for mutations. Even sometimes older people are tested for genetic mutations. And it's important for family members because if there is such a mutation, then other family members could have increased screening surveillance or potentially be tested as well. And then they can have a chance to intervene in wh whichever way they, they choose fit. So other lifestyle factors are alcohol consumption. So alcohol, it doesn't really matter what you're drinking, but I would imagine that if you're drinking alcohol that contains, you know, higher amount of <laughs> like um, alcoholic drinks that contain a higher amount of alcohol, then there's a dose response relationship. We know that people who do not drink alcohol as well their risk of breast cancer is reduced versus people who drink even as small as one to three, one to three drinks per week or three to six drinks per week, um, the risk of breast cancer goes up. It's totally fine to enjoy a cocktail. It's totally fine to have a glass of wine, but it, it should not be daily. That's the, if you take anything away, um, you don't have to have daily consumption of alcohol because sometimes that can increase your underlying risk. Smoking is a big one too. I am yet to find one good thing that tobacco smoking does in the body. So having a long smoking history increases your risk for breast cancer, but also risk for other types of cancers, like especially lung cancer, cervical cancer. Night shift work, this was interesting, but we think it has to do with maybe stress related or inadequate sleep increased levels of cortisol because of night shift work, but there wasn't a clear explanation other than when they studied women, um, in the Women's Health Initiative study, they found that those who had a night shift work routine had higher risk of breast cancer. Again, not a twofold risk, but you know, slightly increased risk. So I wanted to highlight breast density because this is something that plays a role, not necessarily in being able to, in developing cancer, but probably in the ability to detect cancer sometimes. So these pictures are mammogram pictures. So x-ray, a mammogram is essentially an x-ray of the breast. And most people, as they get older, the breasts become entirely comprised of fatty tissue. So some people have extremely fatty breasts and it's about 10% of women, but majority of women are gonna be either here or here where, you know, you have some fiber gondola densities, but mostly fat, or you have, you know, less fat, more density, um, which is still okay, but extremely dense tissue can make it difficult to identify a small lesion if it were present. 
And so um, most of us are gonna fall within this range. For those of us who are of age of mammograms, if you've had your mammograms before and maybe you requested the report, you may see words like, oh, scat cadet fiber glandular density or heterogeneously dense tissue. And oftentimes there'll be a line included. Dense tissue can increase, can decrease the risk of detecting cancer. But the radiologists are required to include that so that the doctors who are reviewing it can discuss with the patients, but also just for everyone to have an increased or a higher index of suspicion and to be on higher alert if you, especially if you have very dense tissue or heterogeneously dense tissue. So factors that we know that do not affect breast cancer is having had an abortion, certain chemicals, having had a tubal ligation, caffeine consumption. Caffeine consumption can cause breast sensitivity, something called fibrocystic disease, which is a benign condition. So some women have it where their breasts feel tender um, or they might feel like it's lumpy, but, and when they don't drink coffee, then they may not feel as lumpy or as sensitive. That has not been, caffeine by itself has not been shown to affect your risk of breast cancer. Now, do you have to drink 100 cups of coffee a day, 10 cups of coffee? No, moderation is key with everything, just like alcohol, coffee, because if you're having to drink that amount of coffee to go through your day, then you need to look at why you're requiring that amount of caffeine and what you could do either you're not getting adequate rest, what can you change? Because overall, the body doesn't function well like that. Then a big one that came up and still comes up, you know, several years ago, um, deodorants and breast cancer, especially deodorants that contain antiperspirants, the aluminum zirconium. Um, the mechanism of action of the aluminum is that it blocks the sweat, the sweat ducts of the skin and the armpit. And so when those ducts are blocked, you don't make as much sweat and then you don't have body odor. The, oftentimes the deodorants also contain parabens, which are preservatives. Um, we need more studies essentially. There are some studies which were not necessarily high quality studies, studies that showed, one showed that they may be uh, an association and another showed that there was no association. I think most of them actually showed there was no association, but again, these were not necessarily the best quality studies. Should you not use deodorant? I don't think so. I think that we're in a world where it's important to maintain good hygiene and some of that involves using deodorants. And so for that, um, if you were doing everything else, maintaining your health, using deodorant alone should not increase your risk of breast cancer more than the next person. So what can we do? What, what can we do by on our own? For those who are privileged to have children, obviously breastfeeding can be protective of breast cancer and especially breastfeeding for some time. The American, the American Association of Pediatricians recommends breastfeeding for up to a year, minimum six months exclusive if you can. And so some people can breastfeed for as long as you want. I typically tell my patients breastfeed for as long as you want, but usually by age two, most kids can do without the breast milk. But you know, sometimes, certainly by six months, you can start supplementing with, with um, other foods, but you could still breastfeed well past a year, up to two years. Physical activity, particularly postmenopausal, and the key is to reduce the amount of fat in the body because the extra fatty tissue can secrete estrogen, which yes, in menopause, your ovaries are not as active in secreting estrogen, but the fatty tissue can secrete estrogen and that can act on the breast and stimulate breast activity when there shouldn't be. And so that would increase you know, risk of breast cancer. The, the new term now, that we use is self-breast awareness, which is the same as breast, self-breast exams. So examining your breast, knowing what your breasts feel like, knowing what they look like, the skin around the nipples, are your nipples usually inverted? Are they not? Is there any nipple draining? Checking the armpit. So these are all important. Just having a good awareness of your breast would go a long way to helping prevent breast cancer. So how do we do a breast exam? It's recommended to do a breast exam while standing or lying down or both. 
um, while standing, usually one hand above your head. And with the other hand, you can feel all around the breast. You can feel in wedges. So starting from the nipples and going in circular motions outward, going all the way to the clavicle, the collarbone. You're feeling for lumps and bumps there and also in the armpit. You can, obviously when you do this, look at the skin, make sure for there are no skin changes at the nipple or on the outside of the skin. Then you can also go up and down, kind of in a um, vertical manner, starting from one side of the breast and working your way all the way to the other end of the breast. Some people choose to do it in a circular motion. You start from the nipple, underneath the nipple, around the areola, and just go all the way until you've covered the whole breast tissue. You also wanna do the same while lying down. Um, again, one hand above the head and feel all around the breast. And the more you do this, you're more likely to feel what your breasts feel like. The breasts are naturally lumpy, forgive me using that word, but for lack of a better word, they are. But the key, you're looking for lumps that are not usually there. So if you know what your breasts feel like, you're more likely to identify when something has changed. Um, you know, lumps that are concerning would be one that causes the skin to retract or pull in. If a lump is round and circular and moves around, those tend to be benign, but will still need to be evaluated to make sure. A lump in the armpit, again, is concerning even without uh, a lump in the breast. And so that should be evaluated. Now, certain conditions like mastitis, if you were breastfeeding, or even without breastfeeding, sometimes we see an infection within the breast, either the skin under the breast or within the breast tissue itself could cause the lymph nodes to be enlarged. And so that would need to be treated. But sometimes mastitis or inflammatory breast cancer can be misdiagnosed for or mistaken for mastitis, which causes the skin to look red and swollen. Um, if, if it's not mastitis, then God forbid, it's something more serious like inflammatory breast cancer. Um, the, the, the key with the self breast exams is not to you know, make you paranoid or not to make you become obsessive about it, but you, know, you should do it as often as you remember and kind of get in the habit of doing it that way you can really, really identify if something has, has changed. So who should get mammograms? The other things we can do to prevent or decrease our risk would be mammography, which has been established to save lives and to really detect cancer at early stage. So the whole point of a screening test is not to detect advanced cancer or advanced disease, but to detect it, detect it at a very early stage so that it can be treated easily. So ideally stage zero, the ductal carcinoma stage or stage one, where sometimes all you need is a lumpectomy to be fully treated. So younger than age 40, mammograms aren't recommended. Between age 40 to 49, the different, um, the different groups, cannot seem to agree. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists do recommend starting screening at age 40, which is how I practice. However, the United States Tax Force of Preventive Care does not recommend screening until age 50. I think the American Cancer Society leans towards age 40. And so because of that, the consensus is between you and your doctor <laughs> decide on when to start screening. If you choose not to screen until age 50, that is okay, but you have to be extremely sure that you're maintaining your health. Otherwise you are doing your self breast exams because regardless of age, a lump in the breast or a skin change in the breast will always be fully evaluated. From age 50 to 74, everyone agrees that mammograms are recommended and to do so every one to two years. Um, most people will do annually. Again, if you've had several and they keep coming back normal and you choose to space them out to two years, that is okay. If you had some that have been abnormal or you needed a biopsy or they found something that may not have been cancerous, you know, I would recommend still staying on top of it until those changes stabilize um, before you can space things out. 
especially, you know, between 59, 60, 60 to 70, kind of an important age to keep up with the screening. After 74, yes, you could still develop breast cancer, but you know, the, what, what is thought is that the chance of you actually dying and having the breast cancer being a cause of mortality goes way down at age 74 or higher, which is why mammograms may no longer be necessary. Now, and if you had someone who's a very active 75-year-old and they were living their life, they look great, and they choose to continue screening, yes, you can for as long as you, you wish to. So I wanted to include this picture. It's a little blurry, but you can kind of make out um, what the normal breast tissue looks like on the mammogram. Um, this would not be considered very fatty breast. This is probably like that picture I showed, maybe scattered fibroglandular densities within this breast, but very normal. You don't see any obvious lumps. This one shows a benign cyst or a benign growth. It's, you can see it's circular, doesn't have irregular borders. It's just kind of circumscribing right there. Sometimes the patient can feel it, sometimes they may not. And then you have something called calcifications, which you can have in someone who doesn't have cancer, but oftentimes calcifications, especially when they become clustered, can indicate breast cancer. And so sometimes you could have a mammogram and you get called back, Ooh, or you, if you read the report, you scattered calcifications, or if there are certain calcifications that look speculated or they look like they have spines, then oftentimes you get called back to maybe have an ultrasound or even a biopsy of that area to rule out cancer. So the whole process of doing mammograms can be you know, nerve wracking, especially in the beginning when you just started doing your mammogram. So you can imagine we don't have a baseline. We don't know what your breasts usually look like. So sometimes when something is seen, there's a shadow in or there's an area of calcification, you could get a call back. Hey, you need to come back for maybe an ultrasound or more spot films. And that is totally normal. It happens more often than not. So if you were to have that, don't um, panic. Don't, you don't have cancer usually. The key is to do that to exclude a problem. Because I would rather have something fully looked at to make sure it's not cancer than to say, oh, it's probably nothing and have it come back, be, come back to be cancer later. Other people that could potentially start doing mammograms at a younger age be if you, if you have certain risk factors. So if, if someone required treatment for um, Hodgkin's lymphoma or, or some type of childhood cancer that involved radiation to the chest wall, especially between the pu pubertal years, 10 to 14, 10 to 16, such a person may need to start doing mammograms from age 25, believe it or not. And you know, such a person may need to do it annually. Sometimes if there's a strong family history of breast cancer, um, then in addition to doing mammograms, a breast MRI may be useful to for to evaluate the breast. Sometimes if someone had extremely dense breasts, as noted on the mammogram, having a breast MRI can help um, screen to detect early cancer if it happens to be there. Other breast imaging modalities that we have, ultrasound comes up very commonly, especially in younger people, assuming you were younger than 30 or younger than 40 and you found a lump, most times we will start with an ultrasound because in younger people, lumps are usually benign. They're either a cyst or they could be a fibroadenoma, which is fibrous um, tissue of the, of the breast. Sometimes, you know, breast MRI, like I mentioned, and the PET scan often comes in when for cancer treatment, if there is um, concern for cancer and it just, this is used to exclude metastatic disease. So another one that's gaining popularity in the US um, is something called thermography. I've had patients mention it from time to time where they opt not to do mammograms and want to do thermography. Thermography is usually not covered by insurance. Most insurances will cover preventive care, cancer testing, such as mammograms or colonoscopy. 
And thermography has not been established to detect early cancer. So none of the associations, none of the groups really recommend using this as the only way to screen for breast cancer. It uses infrared technology and it works with the temperature of the body. And the thought process is cancer cells would have a warmer temperature than surrounding tissue. And so they would kind of light up on the imaging. Um, I wouldn't hedge my bets on this. I think if you have the opportunity and have the access, please have your mammograms because that's the one way that's been shown to really, really save lives. And the key is to pick up cancer at stage zero, stage one. You don't want it to be advanced. If we didn't need to pick it up so early, then nobody needs any screening. You could do your thermography, you could do your self-breast exams, but sometimes it went normal breast exams. And a lot of times the cancer is so microscopic and so small that it's only visible on imaging um, and not actually palpable. Oftentimes when you can feel a lump Unfortunately, if it's not a benign lump, then it's often stage two, 2A, 2B cancer. So a little about me, like I mentioned, I am a private OBGYN. I practice in Gwinnett County in a private practice group. I'm one of five physicians in our group. I enjoy, I love delivering babies, taking care of women at different ages of their lives. And I am happy to take any questions. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ujuka, for a very thorough and informational. Okay, sorry, I didn't realize my video was off. And um, informational session. Um, I'm coming. Sorry. Trying to get my video on so that you can see me while I talk. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Um, so, um, my dear. Um, webinar attendees, um, thank you so much for um, being the best audience ever, patiently listening, and um, all um, mics um, muted. Thank you so much. So I would like to just give us a recap before we go into the question sessions. So um, in summary, um, Dr. Ujuka did talk about a lot of risk factors, and I will just want to use this opportunity to kind of pull out and give you a little cheat sheet to make it easy to recap. So we noticed that there are risk factors that are more of um, per chance. So you find yourself, you're a woman, you can't help it, right? You're white, you can't help it. You're tall, probably you can't help it. Um, you weren't blessed with kids, you can't help it. But we have some risk factors that if we do take some preventative measures, we could reduce the risk of developing breast cancers. And always remember risk factors usually are additive. So when you have several risk factors playing a role at the same time, then your chances of developing bre breast cancer is higher. So um, first and foremost, lifestyle. We will not stop overemphasizing as preventive um, health specialists, um, we have to always reiterate and talk about lifestyle modification, weight management, um, include exercise in your daily routine, eat a balanced diet, portion control, because as Dr. Ujuka had mentioned, high levels of estrogen predispose to um, getting breast cancer. And how do we get extra estrogens? The fat in our body produces estrogen. So we should try and um, monitor our weight and do lifestyle changes that help reduce weight gain, which also means fat accumulation in the body. Another thing also about exposure to estrogen is the use of um, combined oral contraceptive pills. Um, they contain estrogen. I'm not saying do not do family planning, but if you have other risk factors that, produce, that, that could increase your chances of having um, breast cancer, then probably um, the pill that has estrogen may not be your best option, just so that you can reduce your risk of having um, breast cancer. Another thing is, as she had mentioned, prior exposure to radiation um, from cancer management would mean that you should start screening early for breast cancer. Another thing that is protective um, is breastfeeding, which still relates to estrogen exposure. The more you bre breastfeed, the longer you breastfeed, 
the num more number of kids you breastfeed reduces your chances of um, having breast cancer because it reduces your overall exposure to estrogen in your lifetime. Also, um, she mentioned self-exam um, as a form of screening. So please, um, some people do it monthly. Um, they try to um, relate it to the time of their cycle so they don't forget, um, probably um, just after the period or around the time that they're having their menstrual, uh, monthly menstrual cycle. They, that mm -hmm. is a way to remember, like it's a little cheat sheet. Okay, once I'm having my cycle, I should remember to do my mm -hmm. breast self-examinations. Mm -hmm. Another thing she had mentioned, which is also a lifestyle modification, is avoid alcohol, avoid smoking, which are really, really like, as, as we all know, smoking is the number one cause of um, preventable medical issues, whether it's death or, or, or comorbidities like cancers and the rest. Cortisol level, which could be due to stress or due to you, uh, somebody not sleeping enough or somebody's walk pattern binge that they walk at night, right? Predisposes to high cortisol level and high cortisol level predisposes is one of the risk factors to breast cancer. And then also if we could use natural options um, as form of deodorants, that would also be excellent. So um, I, another thing that we never forget to mention in public health webinars is where could you get access? So access um, most cities, um, counties, all over the United States, excuse my daughter in the background, all over the United States um, have public health centers. And these public health centers offer such services, um, sometimes free, mostly free, or it could be subsidized, but do reach out to your public health centers to, to access um, mammogram. That is um, another option once you're above the age of 40. So question time, feel free to type it in the chat. Um, Dr. Ojuka is here for us willing and ready <laughs> to, to, to answer any concerning questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with everything that you've said, um, Dr. Mohammed. And I wanted to highlight the public health departments. Truly, there are lots of um, resources available. So even if you're uninsured, oftentimes there are um, mammogram trucks that would provide mammograms for free or very little cost to someone within the age group that is required. Again, knowledge is power, just looking into it, finding out where you could go instead of not doing anything at all. All right, thank you. So I would like to add one more thing. Okay. I don't have any question, but I would like to take this opportunity to really thank Dr. Iloa Bucci for this wonderful, amazing presentation, you know, and giving this incredible presentation to Women Health First. Thank you so very much, beautiful doctor. I really, really appreciate you. And also we can never thank enough Dr. Mohammed for this leadership role, you know, arranging this presentation and having us uh, to get opportunity to have uh, Dr. Iloa Bucci for this uh, great presentation. I thank you so good. Uh, I thank you very, very much for those uh, beautiful work. And I pray that God really make you continue making you successful in all your endeavors. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Nahila. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yes, um, I'm watching the chat. If you have any question or concerns, um, you could type it in or you could raise your hand so that you can be unmuted um, for you to ask your questions. Anything that needs clarification. Wow. Dr. Ujuka, it seems like you really went all into the details. <laughs> and yeah, she's like, we learned so much right now. We're just trying to digest it. And also, I felt like it was too much. <laughs> no, 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 that's beautiful. Also, Dr. Iroa Buki, if you would like to um, put the stage of the cancer, let's see a little bit because I would like yeah. to know at what area is a really preventive uh, can be done in this uh, uh, framework, in, in those graphics. What do you think, you know, in terms of 100%, we see that is a survival rate. What do we mean by that? A little bit. Can you? So what we mean by that? that is if you were to have your mammogram or through some type of other imaging, your cancer was found at the very, very early stage, which is stage zero. And like I mentioned, this is where the cancer is involved within the 
either the ducts themselves and or the lobes or the lobules, you can go in and remove just where the cancer is contained and you still have a hundred percent survival rate. And this is majority of cancers that we find now in the US tend to be here. We still find some here and here, but again, majority are gonna be here. Now in our home countries, not ideal, but, but we're definitely still seeing some locally advanced cancers or some that are found at stage two but because of decreased or poor access to treatment options, it keeps coming back and eventually progresses to stage four. Yeah. But survival, 100%, that means your cancer is found. The cancer doesn't ultimately cause you to die. So you're treated from it, you recover from it, and you lead on your life and go on to leave how, however many years God has destined for you to leave. Um, yeah, I noticed one about 98%. So, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just noticed that someone has sent in um, Fatima Bucker has a question. Feel free to unmute yourself and um, ask your question. Thank you, Dr. Mohammed. Good evening, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Um, hi, Dr. Elwabuchi. Um, my question was if I wanted to get an appointment with you, how long would that take? And Not back like your contact information <laughs> on the screen. I will, yeah, I can put it in the chat. Just call our office and you can make an appointment. Um, typically, depending on the week or what is going on, you can get in to be seen with me within one or two weeks at the most. But yeah, not. Um, I'll put my, I'll put my office number in the in the chat. We'll put it there now. Thank but you. it doesn't take long at all. And I'm happy to help in any way. Thank you. Thank you, Fatima. Any more people having more questions to ask? So I have a question, Dr. Laubuchi. I know I'm a medical doctor and um, I'm not an OBGYN specialist. But I was just asking, does having a prior um, history of fibrocystic change or fibroadenoma increase your chances of having breast cancer in the future? No, because those are benign breast conditions. Now, there are some other benign breast conditions that are maybe found on you know, mammograms or biopsy that can predisposed to cancer down the line. And I didn't mention them, but some of the names are very technical. And oftentimes it's something the pathologist would tell you when the tissue has been removed and sent to the lab. But fibroadenoma is similar to fibroids that like we see in the uterus. These are benign growth, smooth muscle proliferation, and they usually do not transform to cancer. Fibrocystic changes, Again, it's just the way your breasts are made. They tend to be a little more sensitive, a little more lumpy. Um, things like alcohol consumption, caffeine can make you more sensitive. And sometimes women with fibrocystic changes may get callbacks on their mammograms just because certain areas may not be seen well and then they're worried for cancer, but usually not. Okay, thank you. Any gray areas that need clarification? Hello. Hello. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, I was diagnosed with um, the Benaya 2011, and uh, I went for the biopsy. But every um, six months, I have to go for them to measure you said the benaya. Is there possibility that um, with this benaya, can you get cancer out of it? Were you were you biopsied initially? Did they do a biopsy of the area in question? Yes, they did. And do you remember they just said it was the benign growth? Yeah, I remember they said it was benaya. Yeah. So, so every six months, but now I do it yearly. 
Yeah, so usually they would do the reason to do it every six months then, especially close to the time of the biopsy, is to ensure that there are no changes within that area that was biopsy. Because sometimes, you know, something could look one way initially, but then it keeps having an appearance on the mammogram or ultrasound that looks suspicious. And so you get monitored with six months. Oftentimes you do it six months for about two years. And then yes. after that, you go back to routine screening. And yes. the, the reason to release you from routine screening is often the lesion hasn't changed from what it was. And after it's been looked at several times, it kind of has that look. So now for you, you know, this is just how you are, but not necessarily that it would become cancer. And, but just for the fact that you're a woman of increasing age, you know, that risk for breast cancer is still there. And so not necessarily because you had that issue, but because you're getting older to still continue to do the screening. Right. Because now I'm 57. So mm -hmm. um, I'm always going for, now I go for a yearly checkup mm -hmm. instead of the six months. Yeah. So I did that two years, like you said, and now I'm doing yearly so yeah. i don't know would it happen that i will go back to six months again or unless there is something found god forbid and you needed a okay. biopsy but i would i would keep it to screening once you've been released back to routine screening then right. you're okay to just do the routine screening now if in between your visits you were to palpate a lump regardless of when you had a mammogram, this goes for everyone, not necessarily for our sister asking the question, but if you were to find a lump or a skin change, even though you had a mammogram a month ago, I wouldn't just say, oh, the mammogram was fine. Please have someone else evaluate you, such as your OBGYN or primary care doctor, because if they do find the same lump, then we have to have a full workup because things can happen and things do happen. And so I wouldn't say, well, oh, I had this mammogram, it was fine, because it could be a matter of detecting a very early cancer versus letting it become more advanced. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, thank you everyone for having me. I, th I think it was great. We're over an hour into the talk or almost an hour. Um, we still have a couple of minutes because we start late. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> yes. We have a couple more minutes. Give it sisters chance. And some of them have an IT issues to get in. And earlier also we omit everybody, we meet people that not knowing that we have to omit. So yeah. So let's give another couple more minutes from your sure. precious time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, Sister Halima, did you have any question, any comment to add to this in a public health perspective? What do you make it up of this? Sister Halima? <laughs> no. Yeah, so I um I didn't have any um, questions. It was really really lovely. It was a really good presentation. Um, it was very interesting, and I've been trying to think of um something something just because it's just you know it's a great opportunity to ask a question. But it was a very thorough presentation, and it was um it was well presented. So I I I don't have any questions at this time. If there's if actually let me add if there's any other maybe non-breast cancer related question <laughs> that comes up we can also talk about it um, while we're here. Thank you very much, Sister Halima. Sister Halima joining from uh, Michigan and then also uh, is a public health student and doing MPH. So nice. mashallah, great uh, came in. So um, Dr. Mohammed, go ahead and roll up and see. Yes. Okay. If you have anything in your chat, Dr. Mohammed, and then. Uh, yeah, I see someone on Is that um, autism wonders? Do you want to ask something, or I should? I just saw that you unmuted. Here's a show that you can hear. Here's a show that you can watch on Netflix. Hello, we can't hear. Okay. Anyway, so thank you so much for everyone, um, attendees, presenters host, um, president of Women Health First, um, Sister Nehila Aiva, for giving us such an opportunity um, to reach out to women and talk about pressing um, health issues. Um, Dr. Ujuka, we cannot overemphasize or overthink you. This is a very thorough, thorough, when I say thorough, like I don't think there's any stone you left unturned. Um, we appreciate your time, taking time out of your weekend to be here with us. Um, 
family pressure yeah thank you so much um we really appreciate it and we appreciate you um from me ramatu muhammad and dr ilabuchi thank you so much um and the whole team of women health fest for being here and availing time out of your precious time to all the audience thank you so much have a blessed rest of the week and um, a happy upcoming week thank you thank dr Ojuka, any lasting statements no just thanks for having me and this is a pleasure i enjoy doing this it's not a bother at all <laughs> thank you see you guys um in two weeks with sorry i'm late the special topic um <laughs> it's okay we will have recording of the webinar and you can reach out to sister nahila or to me and we will definitely share um the webinar with everyone that's here and it will be up on youtube yes you can go to youtube um and search women health first webinars and you can access the webinars um i think it should be ready within a few days it right. will be up and we also have several sometimes we we convert the webinars into podcasts and we release um it um in audio form so that you're driving your car you could be listening to it um and do share with as many um women friends you have um about our webinars and um because this is really important to improve the women's health thank you so much thank you yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye -bye. <laughs> yes, thank a lot you. of thank yous, thank yous in the chat box. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.